Hello everybody, I am Dr. Richard Vivedi from zenonco.io and Love Heals Cancer. Today's session is about creating awareness around cancer. Let me first introduce you to zenonco.io and Love Heals Cancer. We guide cancer patients in their treatment journey. We aim to improve the quality of life of cancer patients through an integrative oncology approach that includes both complementary as well as medical treatments. We also provide end-to-end -end care to cancer patients and also help in their counseling sessions, medical cannabis, anti-cancer diet, Ayurveda, pain and palliative care. For today's session, we're joined by Dr. Naveen Bhambani. Let me give you a brief introduction about Sir. He completed his MBBS from State GS Medical College and KEM Hospital, Mumbai. He completed his post-graduation from Tata Memorial Hospital. He did a three-year rotational residency in oncosurgery, followed by a one-year fellowship in thoracic surgery at Tata Memorial Hospital, Mumbai. He then completed various fellowships in thoracic and minimal access oncosurgery. Hello, sir. Thank you for taking time out and joining us for today's session. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me. All right, sir. So, sir, would you like to say anything before we begin with the Q&A session? I would say it's a good initiative. I think uh, today uh, cancer is one of, uh, it's almost, I would now, I think it's dangerous to use the word pandemic in today's day and age, but it's literally uh, kind of achieving pandemic proportions. It's no longer uh, endemic only to uh, the Western world or the urban population. It's across the board and we're seeing numbers rising. So I think it's only fair to create a level of awareness. And I think not just awareness, I think we also need to create a level of confidence in people that ca cancer is not like a death penalty or a death sentence. So we definitely have uh, room for treatment and uh, a good focus on quality of life when we recover out of cancer. Right. Um, all right, so then let's begin with the Q&A session, sir. So like you've done your fellowship in uh, minimal access oncosurgery, um, can you help us understand what are some common minimal access surgery areas? Like where is it possible to do these surgeries? Uh, minimal access, I think primarily uh, would benefit cavity surgeries. And when we say cavity surgeries, we are implying uh, the two big uh, visceral cavities in the body. One is uh, the chest, which uh, holds the lungs and the heart and the food pipe, the esophagus. And the other big cavity is the abdomen, which is also colloquially labeled as the Pandora's box because it houses so much more than you can even imagine, right from the liver, the intestines to the uh, urinary bladder, the kidneys, so uh, access and treatment for uh, surgical intervention into these cavities can be done instead of the traditional method of uh, a long, wide incision that tends to separate the tissues and give an access into these cavities to address them surgically. We now can do the same thing with a keyhole and putting in a magnifying uh, lens uh, attached to a camera and actually visualize the whole thing on high definition monitors and similarly conduct our surgery through keyholes, introducing five and 10 millimeter uh, instruments. And complete the entire surgery under the guidance of this camera and uh, observing it on the monitor. And then literally put a very minimal incision just to deliver the tumor or the specimen outside. 
so the common areas like i mean i mentioned would be when we are dealing with surgery related to the lungs uh, uh, lobectomy for lung cancer uh, esophagectomy for food pipe cancers where we have to remove the entire length of the food pipe uh, we access the chest and the abdomen using minimal access again another brilliant place where this uh, comes to our rescue is in the deep pelvis when we are doing surgery in any of the organs in the lower most part of the abdomen uh is where we have actually our urine bag sitting there we have the prostate in males you have the uterus in females and you have uh, the uh, stool bag called the rectum so any surgery related to these is significantly benefited by the magnification offered with minimal access surgery again intestinal cancers removing a segment of the intestine what we call hemicolectomy is also facilitated with minimal access surgery and we are able to complete the entire procedure with minimal access or if we are anyway going to make a small access incision to deliver the specimen out we can sometimes do a little bit of cost cutting by doing the joining the anastomosis uh, extra corporally or just outside the body and then uh, with the use of staplers and then re deposit the organ back into the abdomen all right uh, so so like you mentioned the esophageal surgeries that is done uh, how often do patients require a feeding tube after undergoing an esophageal surgery uh, well in my rule book it's 100% uh, for the simple reason is i think safety first i know there are uh, people who would promote saying that we could avoid the feeding tube but Uh, like we say we always have a contingency plan in case of an emergency when we are doing a esophagectomy or a food pipe surgery we are actually removing the full length of the food pipe and we are replacing it by a newly stitched up stomach tube a stomach a tube created by uh, the body tissue from the stomach which has been sewn with staplers or hand sewn and then we join that with the leftover food pipe in the neck so there is a lot of stitch, stitching involved or stapling involved any stitching or stapling is uh, prone to possibility of a leakage it's like a stitch going loose and then then food can leak out of it in a scenario where something like that happens uh, a feeding tube serves as a safety valve or even i would label it as a lifeline to salvage the patient's nutritional status while he the patient heals so uh, in principle my my opinion definitely is that all esophagectomy should get a feeding tube and uh, the options could be either having a naso jejunal tube which we call a frecast tube we put it through the nose and and remove it pretty simply versus a small surgical feeding jejunostomy where a tube hangs out from the abdomen the uh, the advantage of the one from the abdomen is it doesn't really hang out from the nose so the patient feels a little more comfortable Yeah. Uh, so, sir, like we've heard, a lot of cancers, like before the diagnosis, one needs to undergo the screening tests. So, how accurate are the results of these screening tests? Uh, see, screening tests uh, are the intention of screening tests. We should understand is to save lives. And when I say save lives, I imply that if you suppose screened a thousand people in the population. you've obviously spent whether you look at it as financial resources or you look at it as uh, medical resources 
uh, you've consumed resources to screen thousand people. At the end of screening thousand people, you should have discovered enough number of cancers at an early enough stage to be able to say that you actually saved lives or the general population unscreened would have found this cancer at a later stage, which have, where the patient would not have survived. So you have to have, when you do a head-on comparison between screened and unscreened population, your screened population should have some percentage benefit in terms of saving lives. Uh, unfortunately, uh, none of the major screening programs world over have shown a dramatic improvement in uh, saving lives by screening. Other than I would say uh, the landmark thing, which I think we can take credit for in India is pap smears. Pap smears done for screening of cervical cancer are uh, have really been life-saving in terms of uh, picking up the disease early and instilling treatment at an early stage. Mammography for breast cancers is also another good example that was su supported world over with good results. In India, I still believe that mammography is a very good screening modality and should be done in the high-risk population. Uh, however, the Western world has probably reached a point where screening is helping them detect cancers at a very, very early stage. And those early stage cancers are so early that there is even a question mark arising on whether screen detected cancers would ever have caused symptoms or risk to life during the lifetime of the patient. So are we over detecting and over treating cancers because uh, breast cancers because of screening? So that is why mammography has fallen out of uh, repute with uh, the Western population. But I think with the level of literacy in our country, mammography still is a strong tool for screening. Uh, screening modalities for other cancers have really not shown any dramatic benefit. Uh, even studies that were done in very high-risk uh, Japanese populations, which because of their tobacco consumption habit, smoking, are very prone to lung cancer. But in spite of uh, screening them, they really did not find it a value addition to include uh, lung cancer screening as part of their national screening program. They now do it only on a paid basis, not paid by insurance or by the national healthcare system uh, for high-risk smokers as a screening CT scan. So there has been limited uh, benefit in uh, screening. Uh, I prefer uh, recommending more uh, easier and cost-effective screening modalities like breast self-examination. I think a monthly breast self-examination should be conducted by all uh, women over 35. And uh, definitely those who have a family history of breast cancer or some high risk factor. Uh, similarly, also uh, a simple thing like fecal occult blood, uh, blood found in a stool test is a good screening modality for picking up colon cancers. And they're very cost effective. A simple stool test barely costs you 100 rupees. Right. Uh, so, so like you mentioned about uh, breast cancer, uh, how does the menstrual and reproductive history affect uh, breast cancer risk, or does it are they not correlated to each other? Oh, they are. On the contrary, very significantly, uh, one of the risk factors for breast cancer is believed to be what we uh, call the estrogen window. 
uh, when I say estrogen window, it is the window period in a woman's life that she is exposed to uh, high levels of estrogen, which happens uh, starting menarche, when periods start, menstrual cycles start, up to menopause. And uh, every cyclical period has a surge of uh, estrogen that happens, which leads to eventually ovulation and subsequently a progesterone phase, which leads to uh, the menstrual cycle. So uh, the higher the exposure to, uh, the, to estrogen, that is early menarche. And unfortunately, now we are also seeing uh, courtesy of probably our lifestyle issues, we are seeing uh, girls in the second and third standard starting their periods, which is uh, you know, under even 10 years of age. And uh, that means they've already been exposed to the estrogen window. And then they also seeing delayed menopause. Uh, women uh, menopause anywhere between uh, 40, 45 to 50, 55. We are seeing a lot of women pushing their menopause age a little later. So the window widens basically. Again, uh, there is a significant uh, delay with, uh, I would say, call it westernization or even uh, a number of uh, women uh, who are trying to strike a balance between uh, the professional world as well as the personal world and thereby uh, delaying either marriage or planning a family and pregnancy. So uh, what pregnancy does, I mean, everybody only assumes it's like, the philosophy of bringing a child into the uh, world and probably then uh, breastfeeding to, to feed the child. But there's a huge benefit that every episode of pregnancy and lactation does to the woman, the mother herself, because it actually gives you a nine month break during pregnancy from estrogen because there are no periods. So there is the, it's the, the estrogen is suppressed. It's a progesterone, prolonged progesterone phase in a woman's life. Again, lactation, the longer we breastfeed, uh, that suppresses periods from coming. Lactating women usually don't have uh, menstrual cycles. So and a lot of women now in the necessity that uh, they have to revert back to work, stop feeding at three or six months. Traditionally, women used to feed children beyond a year. So uh, somewhere that uh, protection of a break from the exposure to estrogen is also lost. So th these are a couple of uh, lifestyle changes that have probably led to an increase in the incidence of uh, uh, breast cancer. Another contributing factor is industrialization. Now we don't just look at cow's milk or we don't look at uh, this thing. All industries are looking at increasing their volume of manufacturing. So how do you get a cow to generate more milk so that you have more volumes to sell? So there's a lot of hormonal exposure given to the cows, which gets excreted in the milk and is again consumed by uh, us humans. Probably one of the contributing factors which where children consume maximum milk. So children could be landing up with early uh, menarche and periods, uh, probably because of this unnecessary uh, hormonal exposure. Uh, so, and what are some other gynecological cancers that there are? Uh, see, the commonest gynecological cancer, if I really speak in context to our country, is cervical cancer, which is the reason why I mentioned that pap smears were uh, literally, uh, uh, I would call, practice-changing methods and life-saving methods for our country. 
uh, fact, basically, uh, gynecological cancer, if I was to just give you an umbrella cover, it covers uh, cervical cancer, which is the cancer involving the mouth of the uh, uterus, the uh, womb uh, in lay language, or uh, the, uh, uh, the, the uterine bag, the outlet, is what is called the cervix. And the, when the cervix has an, a growth over it, it is, it's labeled as cervical cancer. The uh, second uh, commonest cancer related to gynecological cancer is endometrial cancer, which is, involves the lining, the inner lining or the skin of the uterus inside, which actually changes periodically with the change in the hormones every 15 days. It's either thickens and then that is the layer that actually comes out in bleeding. So uh, it is affected by the hormonal changes that are uh, generated by the ovaries. And then the third, of course, is the ovarian cancer. So these are the three commonest uh, gynecological cancers. Uh, I think uh, it is very important for uh, us to understand that uh, these three are uh, very high in our population uh, because of poor hygiene. Uh, if you understand that there is a huge cultural taboo in our country about women discussing uh, any genital issues, any issues related to their periods, it's, it was even considered taboo or uh, unholy for a woman to be bleeding during her periods. So with all these cultural taboos, a lot of women tend to ignore uh, symptoms related to their private parts and they rarely would even discuss it out, uh, find feeling ashamed to go and approach a doctor. But uh, bleeding out of a routine schedule, like uh, intermenstrual bleeding, uh, bleeding post-coital after an episode of intercourse, post-menopausal bleeding or spotting, uh, these are typical signs that could be early uh, hints of either cervical or uh, endometrial cancer. Ovarian cancer usually presents with more of a fullness of the uh, lower abdomen. You know, the tummy just seems to like have bloated up. You're, you're feeling, you feel pregnant when you're not actually uh, expecting a pregnancy. So uh, that is another point that should not be ignored. People pass it off as just weight gain, but that's another uh, aspect that should be kept in mind. Okay, and uh, so in what cases is an hysterectomy performed? Uh, usually, uh, if I was to again categorize the these three cancers, gynecological cancers, uh, cervical cancer is largely a disease treated by radiation. So to put it in perspective, uh, cancer treatment has got three main modalities, surgery, where you, where you actually remove the uh, culprit organ and uh, maybe adjacent tissue, what is required. Radiation, where you radiate or you burn out the uh, tissue without operating on it or after surgery, where what you're aiming to do is actually sterilize or uh, inactivate any uh, microscopic cancer cells left over in the body after surgery or inherently the entire tumor itself if it is a radiosensitive tumor and third modality is chemotherapy which is usually used in systemic cancers where the, the cancer involves more than just the local organ it has spread to other organs also or other parts of the body 
or is inherently a system involving like a blood cancer or a leukemia or something like that so there we actually instill a drug into the body's patient system either orally or by giving an intravenous injection and that drug enters into the blood circulation and goes and kills the cancer cells wherever they are there in the body uh lastly if i may add nowadays we also have some focus on hormone therapy and immunotherapy principle by which both of those work is also like chemotherapy only now uh, cervical cancers are primarily cancers that are radio sensitive so either very early stage cancers or mandatorily all advanced stage cancers anything over stage 2 is indicate is treated only by radiotherapy with or without adding chemotherapy if uh, we feel there is an added benefit there is no role of surgery for any cancer above stage 2 stage 2 in cervical cancer in early stage 1 cancers there is an equal benefit with surgery as with radiation that's why largely cervical cancers are uh, radi- radiation treated cancers or radio sensitive cancers these are the endometrial cancers cancers of the uterine lining are primarily treated with surgery or with what we call a radical hysterectomy where we remove the uterus both the ovaries the lymph nodes in the pelvic area that where this disease tends to spread first and uh, any other area of spread uh, thirdly ovarian cancers are a good uh, example of a where combination therapy or combined modality therapy is of very significant importance because they also melt to chemotherapy but they the benefit is very high in doing what we call a cytoreductive surgery we reduce the volume of disease to be treated with chemotherapy by removing the uterus and the ovarian tumor uh, tumors along with any other spread anywhere else in the abdomen so surgery has a strong role to play in ovarian cancer almost equal to that of chemotherapy also okay. uh, sir how are the chances of childbirth affected due to a hysterectomy uh primarily i think let's get our basics very clear uh, the for childbirth the ova ova the egg is produced in the ovary which then travels into the uterus the uterine cavity sits in the endometrial area and is then uh, fertilized by a sperm and forms a embryo which uh, embeds itself into the wall of the uterus the lining of the uterus and grows inside the uterus so uh, the uterus is the house for the child to grow so not having a uterus primarily makes it uh, technically impossible for a woman to bear her own child but in a scenario where you had a hysterectomy only removal of the uterus for either a very early cervical cancer what we call a cin or carcinoma in c2 uh, like technically a stage 0 cervical cancer picked up on a pap smear and the ovaries are intact so the eggs can be produced by the woman but there is no place for her to house the child that will be uh, has uh, growing over a period of 9 months so in principle she can't bear her own child but she can consider having her own child that is having her own genes 
in by using her own uh, ovum or egg from the ovary which is removed by a process of uh, ovum harvest a, a, a component of in vitro fertilization or uh, artificial fertilization which is quite common now and then fertilized uh, extra corporally or in vitro uh, using the husband's sperm the embryo is formed in a laboratory and then they have to apply for surrogacy they have to request a woman who has a uterus to uh, hold the child for 9 months we, as they call a surrogate mother and then hand over the, the baby back to the mother so technically the a simple answer to it be without a uterus you can't have a child but if you are very insistent on having your own genetic material and have ovaries intact there is a, a long drawn process where it can be made feasible right okay uh, sir anything else you would want to say to our viewers before we conclude today's session so oh, i think uh, these were good uh, a series of questions that i uh, believe would will sort a lot of faqs in uh, people's minds and uh, i think today we should Uh, respect the fact that a lot of media is available like i mentioned to you a breast self examination video is free, freely available on a google search i would encourage people to go through these uh, uh, material available and actually implement it on themselves do not get uh, paranoid about the word cancer there are so many people who get worried thinking that i uh, what if i have cancer and in that tend to deny uh, themselves treatment that you know it's like i'd rather not know it than know it and treat it so first thing is accept it because the moment you pick up a cancer at an early stage you have much better options available wherein you can uh, get treated well and live a reasonably good longevity as well as quality of life Uh, if i give a simple example from this there were traditionally breast cancers were treated by removing the breast in surgery today breast conservation surgery as we label it or preserving the breast and only removing the tumor is has become a common practice and i would safely say above 75% of my regular breast cancer treatment practice so uh, don't fear the worst instead approach in time so that you are able to get good guidance and treatment also uh, stop fearing the word cancer cancer is no longer a death sentence today i believe cancer has reached a point of becoming a chronic disease like diabetes blood pressure in many aspects like breast cancer cervical cancer where if picked up early and treated well a normal life can be considered all right sir so thank you so much sir. i think this was a very informative session a lot of doubts must have been cleared today and once again it was a pleasure having you with us today thank you for taking time out and joining us today thank you rishya all the best thank you so much